God, we give you thanks and praise for this day. Father, Lord, we thank you for calling us out of our sleep and into the gathered worship of your bride here at Christ Community Church. Lord, we thank you for our confession of sin and our proclamation of faith. Lord, our worship through song and through liturgy this morning. Lord, we pray as we read your word and we hear it taught, Lord, that Lord, your spirit would be poured out among us today, Lord, to believe to understand what you have inspired. Lord, we thank you for what you have done among us, and we pray all of this in the name of Christ. Amen. We'll hear the word of the Lord from the prophet Habakkuk, chapter 2, verses 6 through 20. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own, for how long? And loads himself up with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise, and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the peoples shall plunder you. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And woe to him who makes his neighbors drunk. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. And woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, and to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver. And there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hallelujah. So this week, um, as I was driving, uh, which I did a lot this week for some reason, but anyway, as I was driving, I was listening to an audio book, and that's something that I do fairly regularly, right? Actually, if... If you don't, listening to an audiobook or a podcast or a sermon, you know, plug for our church podcast sermon, Sunday School Audio, 
uh, it's a good thing. It's a good practice to have in the car, right? Just it, it one, it keeps you from getting irritated at the bad drivers on the road, right? Because you're listening to something else. But I was driving and I was listening to a book um, about Dante, which I know we are all want to do from time to time, right? Because we're all very curious about Dante. Dante is the, I believe, 14th century Italian poet that wrote um, the Divine Comedy. So Inferno, Paradiso, or excuse me, uh, Purgatorio and Paradiso. But as I was listening to it, um, and this even happened to me yesterday when I was mowing the lawn and still listening to the same book. Thankfully, God can use these things sometimes <laughs> to help kind of bring things to mind. But I was listening to this, and I realized really what's helpful about this text today is, is that God's command in chapter 2, verse 4 that we looked at last week, that the righteous shall live by his faith, is really what informs the entirety of God's response here to Habakkuk through this whole text today. Because in this text now, for the very first time, God is actually providing a direct answer to Habakkuk's complaints. He hadn't done this so far. He's, he has referred him in other directions. Now God responds directly. And if you'll recall, Habakkuk had been complaining. How long? How long will you, Lord, remain silent in the face of this violence and this evil and this wickedness of your people? And then God responded with saying, well, you know what? If you think that's bad, here comes the Babylonians. And so, God, and so Habakkuk complains again. And he says, well, okay, well, are the guilty, are the violent, are they going to be able to go unpunished forever? Are the wicked going to remain always unpunished? And so what God does here then through this entire rest of chapter 2 is he, he speaks a series of five different woes against the one or the ones who are wicked, who work evil. And as we go through this text, pay attention to how each of these woes and their corresponding judgments, they really stack upon one another. God, he starts, and then it's just a domino effect. And also how they're built, not only out of 2-4, the righteous shall live by his faith, but also out of 2-5, where last week the Lord describes what the destructive character of the wicked looks like. And I'll reference that pretty regularly today as we go through each of these woes. And also take note that each of these woes are a response to Habakkuk's complaint about God's justice. And so they demonstrate a posture of righteousness by faith which is arriving, as we have talked about this whole time, at the destination of humility and repentance and resting in God's sovereignty. And so in order to see this, I think, as clearly as we can, we have to actually begin at the end. So go to the very bottom of your bulletin there, and it'll flip over to the next page as well. But we're going to begin with that final woe found in verses 18 through 20. And the reason we do this is because... While everything is built out of the righteous, that live by his faith, and, and also chapter 2, verse 5, we see here, though, that all wickedness, whether that be the wickedness of Judah that first caused Habakkuk to complain, or the wickedness of Babylon, or even the wickedness of every single person or nation or government or so on and so forth, all wickedness at its core is a form of idolatry. It's a form of rejection from God, of false worship. Listen to what God says here in these last three verses. He says, what profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal thing, a teacher of lies, for its maker trusts in his own creation for when he makes a speechless idol? Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, or to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, but there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple, so let all the earth keep silence before him. So to understand how, how wickedness is a form of idolatry, which I don't think 
anybody would disagree with in here. But to understand it, we really we kind of need to back out a little bit and just remind ourselves of both Habakkuk's context as well as our own. So scripture, scripture is constantly overflowing with denunciations of idolatry, of worshiping something other than the Lord. Uh, we see this in the law. We see it in the prophets. We see it in the Psalms. We see it even in the New Testament. And the very covenant itself that God made between himself and the people of Israel in the desert is founded upon the rejection of worshiping something other than Yahweh, of worshiping an idol. God writes in the first two of the Ten Commandments, he starts the Ten Commandments and says, You shall have no other gods besides me. And then he follows it up with this one. You shall not make yourself a carved image, and you shall not bow to it, or you shall not serve it. For I, Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God. And so what these two commandments do is they display exclusive covenant loyalty to the Lord God, to Yahweh. And so he not only desires, he commands that our worship rest completely and solely in him. And so the Lord Jesus himself actually repeats a similar command when he is being tempted by Satan in Luke chapter 4. And Jesus replies to Satan and he says, It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And so what, these, what this does is, is this represents really a major break from the dominant culture of the ancient Near East. Where in each region and sometimes even in each household, they would have their own god or a series of gods that, that, that they would worship as a clan or as a people. But here, this begins to give us a grasp on what God means when he tells Habakkuk, the righteous shall live by his faith. Because idol worship is a paradox. Because as these verses tell us, an idol is a human creation. There's no benefit in an idol. There's no benefit to the one who worships it. You don't get anything out of worshiping an idol. And also, an idol is completely silent. But even in its silence, an idol can still deceive. And it deceives those who place their trust in it and their worship in it. Because as we see here, the trust, as God says in verse 8, the trust is in your own creation. And that's really the root of the futility of idol worship. An idol isn't a dead god. It is a completely unliving god. It has never been alive. And telling a piece of wood or a piece of stone to get up and to wake up is just completely foolish, God says. He says, and no amount of gold or silver overlay will give it life. An idol is dead. It's not even alive. Idol worship shows the futility of crying out to a god that can neither stand nor hear nor live. But then we come to verse 20, and we see by contrast, Yahweh is different. Yahweh is actually alive. Yahweh is not only alive, but he is present in his temple. So unlike an idol, Yahweh is not silent. Instead, the earth is called to be silent in his presence. And so what idolatry does is it attempts to avoid Yahweh's rule and Yahweh's sovereignty by denying the reality of his existence. But idols are unliving, but Yahweh is alive. And life must be lived under Yahweh's rule. This is his point here at the end of Habakkuk 2, that the wicked have missed this extreme fundamental fact. The reality of Yahweh's sovereignty means that those who live by faith can be sure that his justice will be seen. It will occur, even if it occurs in his own timing. The wicked do not recognize that, and they worship themselves, and they worship their idolatry. And so out of that idolatry, then, we can circle back all the way to the beginning and look at these other woes and their judgments. 
and see how they, that is really all built. All of these woes are built out of the idolatry of the wicked. And so beginning in verse 6, we see here that the verse itself, the woe doesn't even begin until halfway through the verse. But the first half of the verse does give us some really interesting details. We see here that God first, he says, he doesn't really specify who these woes are addressed to. He just says, shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say? So he doesn't really give a specific, shall not Babylon, right? Now, now we can infer, right? And we could rightly infer from context that this could include Babylon. It could include the wicked of Judah. Because uh, we see here all these in verse 6 could easily be the nations that Babylon oppressed. Shall not all of these nations take up their taunt against him, against Babylon? It could also refer, refer to the wicked of Judah who oppressed the righteous remnant of Judah. Shall not all of the righteous remnant of Judah taunt against and, and mock against the wicked of Judah and say these things? But it's here where we can see how God is directly now turning his attention to respond to Habakkuk's complaints and his frustrations and his questions. But also note, at least here in the first half of this verse, this lack of being specific. Or I wrote here even in my notes, specificity, because I thought that was a really cool word. But this lack of specificity, it does tell us something. It tells us that each of these woes, while they do apply to Babylon and they do apply to the wicked of Judah, they can also apply to anyone who is wicked. Anyone who is caught up in the deception of idolatry. And that could include any of us. And so in this first woe found in verse 6, it's addressed to the wicked who accumulates wealth unjustly. And this could easily, easily be addressed to the wicked in Judah or the wicked in Babylon. But listen to what he says. He says, woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself up with pledges. And so what God does here is he shows in this verse their greed as a violation of his law. When he, when he makes that comment at the end of the verse when he says he loads himself up with pledges. Because a pledge here could be understood as collateral. Like you would use to secure a loan or um, a policy of some kind. I'm looking at Greg, right? You know, this is, you know, collateral. We all know what collateral is. If you bought a house or you bought a car, you have to have some kind of collateral, right? And so a pledge is to ensure a repayment of a loan. In the ancient world, it was not uncommon for a person to use their cloak or their tunic as their collateral to repay a debt. But notice here in this verse that God says that the wicked, he loads himself up with pledges, meaning that he is overflowing with the collateral of others. In his greed, he's holding on to them because, as he told us in chapter 2, verse 5, his greed is as wide as Sheol. Meaning he has loaded himself up so much, he has too many cloaks to deal with, and he's not giving them back. Now, for Israel, this was a practice that was strictly forbidden by the law, particularly towards a fellow member of the covenant community. In Exodus 22, God commands, he says, a cloak could indeed be given as a pledge or as a collateral, but it had to be returned at least every evening for the sake of, of warmth, right? Because it gets cold at night. You need something to warm yourself with. But for the wicked in Judah, as Habakkuk had already complained back in the first four verses of chapter 1, that didn't matter. And he, as he closed out there in verse 4, he says, The law is paralyzed among your people. Your justice never goes forth. They don't care about your law anymore. So to put it simply, the wicked here, they claim what is not their own and never would rightly be theirs. So this is an extortion by the wicked at the expense of the righteous. But then he also says here, for how long? Well, verses 7 and 8 tell us. 
Verse 7 begins here. We read the beginning of this judgment for the one who heaps up what is not his own, who overloads himself with pledges. He says that they, they will lose every bit of it. Their debt will be called in. Remember in two five, the Lord was very clear. He says, wealth is a traitor, and it's greed that is never at rest. And so this question in verse 7, it's a rhetorical question, but it's very emphatic in its declaration. He, he asked this question, will not your debtors suddenly rise up and all those awake who will make you tremble? Well, the answer is yes, absolutely. This is going to happen. For those who claimed, for those who have claimed this unjustly and greedily maintained a multitude of pledges, God states here, he says, there will come a time when those who have been unjustly indebted will rise up against you. And so he, he warns them here, he says, rather than worshiping your own power and might as Babylon was wont to do, God warns the wicked here, he says, you need to tremble because those whom you have oppressed, they will rise up against you. And you will be spoiled for them, he says. And then as verse 8 tells us, he says, the plunderer will become the, pl- the plunderer will become the plunderer. He says this, because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the peoples shall plunder you. All of the righteous remnant that are left in all of these nations that you've conquered, Babylon, they will come and plunder you. All of the righteous remnant left in Judah, you wicked of Judah, you will become plunder for them. He says that the, wick, the violence of you, wicked, will beget violence towards you. And they will do it completely, he says, for the blood of man and violence to the end of the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. This is complete and utter takeover. Your violence has beget violence toward you. And then moving into the next woe, in the second woe, verses 9 through 11, we see that it starts to stack here. Right? It continues to address this evil gain. He writes this in verses 9 and 10. He says, Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house and to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. Starting there in verse 9, that first clause of verse 9, Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house. This getting evil gain could be, we could translate it directly from Hebrew as, Woe to the one cutting off an evil cut. I know that makes absolutely no sense to us, but in the Hebrew, this makes a lot of sense because it alludes to a merchant who has intentionally cut a piece of fabric shorter than he promised to deliver. Right? This is extortion. Right? He has given the customer something that he has not promised. He has taken full payment and given him an intentionally faulty product. Right? That's evil gain. And so from that evil gain, what the wicked does, God says here in verse 9, they believe that their wealth then, I have accumulated a lot of wealth. This is going to provide me security. My money will give me safety. And Habakkuk writes here, he says, Woe to him who sets his nest on high. The wicked have accumulated their wealth unjustly and from evil schemes, but they believe their wealth has actually taken their house and placed it beyond the reach of those who could rise up against them. Now, whatever that means, right? That could be fences, that could be security, whatever. Security guards, not security, the feeling of security, right? But they've reasoned within their own minds that just like a bird has built its nest up on the high boughs of a tree, that they've convinced themselves that their wealth has put them beyond the reach of the oppressed. But remember, in 2.5, God tells them, he says, wealth, especially the idolatry of wealth, this is a traitor. It will turn against you. 
This greed and this desire for safety has actually created shame for their household, God says here. Because in their greed and their shame, the wicked here in verse 10, it says, you have cut off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. This means that the wicked have actually killed. They have murdered to obtain their greed. But also, he says, you have forfeited your life. You will be killed because of your greed. Wealth is a traitor, God says. His greed is as white as Sheol, but like death, wealth never has enough. He's never satisfied. And so in verse 11, we come to this judgment. Instead of a place of safety and security, God proclaims here in verse 11 that Babylon's wickedness and Judah's wickedness, it's so great. It's so profound that their evil has actually seeped down into the structure of their buildings. He says the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Their very homes are crying because of the depth of their wickedness and of their idolatry. Jeremiah, would, who prophesied around the same time as Habakkuk, he actually preached a similar message to the kings of Judah. And this same message, and he condemned this same type of extortion upon the poor and righteous that Habakkuk was complaining to God about earlier in this book. Which tells us that this kind of wickedness was being bombarded upon and against the righteous remnant from all sides. Not only from their rulers, but from the wicked that were living in Judah as well as those that were coming in to take them over. They were being bombarded everywhere. Reminding us there's literally nothing new under the sun. That all of God's righteous covenant people will be hated because of him. But the wicked we see here God proclaims in verse 11. They cannot create total security for himself. Instead, the wicked of Judah will be among those who will either be killed or they will be taken as slaves into exile into Babylon, while Babylon itself will find itself completely unprotected by its wealth. They have forfeited their lives. And as we approach this third woe, it's really here where we start to see how it builds upon, these woes build upon one another. Because you notice, there, if you can notice, there's an expansion in this third woe from this second woe. There's an expansion now from a household from verse 9 now to a city or a town. So it's, it's building on itself. It's, go, it's moving outwards. And God pronounces judgment to those who have founded a city on bloodshed, but also through their violence and through their iniquity. But before we read verse 12, skip down to verse 13 because we see that in verse 13 in this list of woes, Yahweh is now mentioned for the first time. And he says this in verse 13, Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts, from Yahweh of the armies of heaven, that peoples labor merely for fire and that nations weary themselves for nothing? And this is important. The fact that he's mentioned here is important because it reminds us that Yahweh's involvement in the world is complete. He is very visible as the world events unfold. And he is in control of all of it. It reminds us of his sovereignty over his creation. Being reminded of God's sovereignty stresses to us his power over all wickedness. Even this wickedness that may have seeped into the wood and the stones of a structure. The wicked may intend for their wealth and their unjust gain to tell of their grandeur or to bring them worship. But Yahweh's sovereign hand means that the wicked will end up toiling for even the very basics of life. He says, will not they labor merely for fire? They will. And they are going to weary themselves for nothing. 
But then let's zoom out again for a moment. Let's, let's review Habakkuk's immediate context within Judah. Because remember, he had complained back at the beginning of chapter 1 that the law had become paralyzed because of Judah's wickedness. They didn't care for the law anymore. So according to Judah, excuse me, according to Genesis, which is the law, right? It's Torah. The shedding of innocent blood was a crime that could only be remediated by shedding the blood of the murderer, shedding the blood of the one who did the innocent blood shedding. Also, according to Numbers 35, which again is still part of the law, land upon which innocent blood was shed could not be purified through a sacrifice. It could only be purified by shedding the blood of the one who had spilled the innocent blood. The murderer is the only thing that could meet that requirement. So then approaching verse 12 from that context, we read this. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city upon iniquity. A land or a nation or a city that is built upon the shed blood of the innocent is one that cannot be purified. And therefore it cannot endure. It is unholy. And it will eventually, in God's timing, it will fall. But I noticed something here that I thought was really quite fascinating in this verse, especially from this principle. There is a satanic parody of the church at work here in this passage. Because God tells us that through the death and destruction of the former inhabitants, the wicked have built, they have founded a new city, a new house, a new nation in their image. In the image of their idolatry, of their wickedness, of their iniquity. And they have built it upon a foundation of blood. Again, God says here, Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. But by contrast, Paul tells us in Philippians 2.20 that the church is built upon the blood of Christ Jesus. With the apostles and the prophets as the foundation with Christ Jesus as its cornerstone. Those who are violent and wicked, they obtain their, quote, salvation through wealth and through unjust gain. And they demand pledges, and every time they do this, they inevitably arrive at the destination of self-worship. And they arrive at the founding of their home, of their city, of their nation, a place of their self-worship that is built upon the, innocent of the, of, is built upon the blood of the innocent. Jeremiah tells us that the heart of man is deceitful above all things. And it is desperately wicked. And here in chapter 2, verse 12, Yahweh states here, he says, The wicked are idolatrous because the wicked not only place their salvation hope in their wealth and their gain and their safety, but also because the wicked build for themselves satanic parodies of the covenant community of God, they seek their own glory. But God responds here in verse 14. He responds to this satanic parody by stating in verse 14 that instead of the glory of the wicked, the earth would be filled with the knowledge of his glory instead. The earth will be filled, he says, with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And this is another emphatic statement in this. This is a certainty. This is not a question. God will accomplish this. This will happen. And knowledge here means more than just simple information. To know God is to be in right standing with God. Knowing God involves intimacy with God. It involves the experience of God. This is why every time God describes his relationship with his covenant people, he always describes it with the imagery of the covenant of marriage. Because it involves 
intimately knowing God more than just knowing about him, more than just knowing about the fact that he exists. It involves actually being intimate with him. And this glory, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of his glory. Glory understood here as the manifested presence of God. This proclamation of verse 14 is for God's glory to fill all of creation. The knowledge of his glory will be as widespread as the waters that cover the seas. And of course, approaching this through a new covenant lens, we understand that the full glory of God has come into the world. It has fully been manifested in the person and work of Christ Jesus. As John writes in John 1, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. And from his fullness we have received grace upon grace. And no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, but Christ has made God fully known. By combining knowledge and glory, Yahweh is emphatically stating here and insisting that his true character will be known by everyone. And so this is how God starts to answer Habakkuk's complaints. How can you let the wicked go unpunished, Lord? Are they going to go unpunished forever? God works in the world to accomplish his purposes, but his purposes goes beyond merely punishing the wicked. God tells us that the wicked, as well as the righteous, will fully know him. As Paul tells us in Philippians, Therefore God has highly exalted Christ and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The point here being, the wicked may, be, may not be in a right relationship with God, but they will acknowledge the manifested glory of God through the person of Christ. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. And then finally, we come to this fourth woe, and it actually builds out of that satanic parody of the church that is introduced in that third woe. And this woe, what it does is it uses the imagery of the wicked actually forcing his victims to drink their wrath to their shame. Again, in Habakkuk 2.5, God says, Wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. And God says here in verse 15, excuse me, he says, Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. Babylon, and this is the case for most oppressive peoples, especially conquering nations like this, but Babylon took particular advantage and joy in shaming the nations that they conquered. In order to bring shame upon them, what we see, or actually just a good example, in early in Daniel 5, Daniel describes how Babylon, that they would have constant drunken parties all the time. Like this is just who they were as a people. But their parties always became more than just simply getting drunk. They turned into these major debaucherous orgies. I mean, they were full of decadence and sexual immorality. And so Babylon, they would take joy in taking advantage of their slaves, and they would force them into these things, all for the purpose of just mocking them for their entertainment. Now, for Israel and for Judah, because of the fall of man in the garden, we understand that nakedness symbolized shame, like complete and utter shame. And this shame was forced upon them by Babylon so that Babylon could mock them, and as God says here in verse 15, 
just so that they could gaze upon them being naked. This is complete and utter shame and mocking at the expense of someone else. And so here in verse 16, we see that the particular focus of the judgment of this woe is focused completely on the wicked's desire just to bring shame upon someone else. But there's an irony here in verse 16. Those who desire the shame of others will themselves be shamed because wine, drunkenness, it's a traitor. Verse 16, the very beginning there, God says, You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. God says here, he says, you, you know what, instead, you get drunk and you show your uncircumcision. In, in the Hebrew, we could translate this as, consider yourselves uncircumcised. Or if you want to think more covenantally regarding the old covenant, prove yourself as one who is not of my covenant. You get drunk, take off your clothes, and show me that you don't belong to me. And this didn't just apply to Babylon. It also applied to the wicked of Judah. God is telling the wicked of Judah here in response to Habakkuk's complaint, you will also be viewed as uncircumcised by God. You are no longer part of my covenant people. You are cast out. Yahweh says in the second half of verse 16, he says that he holds the true cup of shame, the true cup of judgment in his righteous right hand. He holds it in his right hand like the scepter in a right hand of a sovereign. He holds this cup, not a pathetic imitation that the wicked force upon the innocent, He will bring the true cup of shame upon them as a judgment for their wickedness and for their oppression of his true covenant people. And so what God is displaying here for us is the intense reality of his judgment upon the wicked. Babylon had exposed others for their own amusement and for their own pleasure. So now they would be exposed and they would be shamed. And exposing their nakedness not only shamed them publicly like Babylon was trying to do and did do to their slaves. But exposing their nakedness also exposed them spiritually because it showed that they were not part of God's covenant people. And then in verse 17, the Lord, he uses the same violence of Babylon, but the violence that they did to the forests of Lebanon. And he uses this as an illustration to describe the type of violence that will overwhelm the wicked. In verse 11, he says, The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them. And then he repeats again, as he did in verse 8, for the blood of man and violence to the end of the earth, to the cities and all who dwell in them. This will be complete. But throughout Scripture, we know that that Lebanon, it held extreme significance. The trees were massive. They were tall. And in their conquest, Babylon had destroyed a huge majority of the forests of Lebanon, depriving the, nat- the animals of their natural habitat, right? You, you tear down a forest, things have nowhere to live, right? Now, this is not an environmental preservation sermon, but this is important because here we see that not only will Babylon be punished by the nations that it had conquered, but even the animal life itself will rise up against them and will destroy them. Honestly, as I was working on this, I couldn't help but think of that end scene, that the very final scene or one of the final scenes of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe when Aslan and the army of Narnia is fighting the White Witch. Like, this is that moment when Babylon is overthrown by the animals, right? But in this judgment, what the Lord does is he reverses the wicked's position and he reverses their fortunes. Babylon, like Nineveh, would become a, former sh- a shadow of its former glory. And what they had done to others, including the natural world, God would allow to be done to them. 
And so now we've come full circle. We're back at that final woe. And I think framing it, framing all of this wickedness as an idol, we can understand God's judgment upon wickedness and how it is rooted in false worship and idolatry. And so like we asked last week, what, what does God have for his covenant people? What does he have for us in looking at the judgment upon this wickedness? And I think, I think the answer is the same that he gave to Habakkuk, as we saw last week in chapter 2, verse 4. As his church, as his people that sojourn in exile, we need to live by faith. Wickedness, idolatry, leads to separation from Yahweh. It leads to idolatry in the worship of self. And it ultimately, as we have read here this morning, it leads to the complete judgment of the Lord God. And some of the final lines of of Inferno by Dante, the poet writes this. He says that the one who chooses self over Christ has ultimately chosen Satan over Christ. This is as he is gazing upon Satan in the bottomless pit of hell. This is the result of idolatry and self-worship. It's choosing Satan over Christ. Our Eastern Orthodox friends refer to this as a manifestation of our passions. They call these, this idolatry our passions, these things that we love more than we love the Lord Jesus. Loving wrongly causes us to create idols that stand between us and God. And so we are called to sacrifice our idols. We're called to sacrifice our passions in the flesh and blood body of the Lord Jesus Christ, so that by his flesh and blood resurrection, we can have victory over those passions, those idols. And so really, the only question to ask is what idols or what passions, good or bad, have we placed between ourselves and the worship of God? And that could be anything. That could be bad things such as, as we've seen here, wealth or power or this lust for for power and wealth. It could be this lust for drunkenness and sex like the Babylonians. Or it could be good things like family or friends or even the need to be accepted and please others. It could even be the death of a desire or a dream. So come to the altar this morning. Come to the table and lay those idols on Christ. As you take the bread and the cup, rest in the righteousness of Christ and live by faith. May God's name be magnified and the knowledge of his glory fill the earth as the waters cover the sea.